Welcome back everyone. Today I want to find out which valuation measure is better, dividend yield theory or the PE multiple. I took 25 high quality dividend stocks and I backtested them during the last 6 years to see which valuation method was able to generate the most alpha. The outcome was very interesting and I'd love to share it with you in this video. At the end, I'll also discuss how you can use this information to potentially generate a little bit more alpha in your portfolio as well. Let's dive right in. First, let me tell you how all 25 stocks performed during the last 6 years, relative to the S&P 500. Between 2018 and 2023, the S&P 500 returned 96.53%, which is a compounded annual growth rate of 11.92%. That's a pretty solid rate of return that would nearly double your money in the span of 6 years. That's not bad at all from an ultra-passive investment. The 25 high-quality dividend stocks in my test performed a little better. They returned 212.64%, which is a compounded annual growth rate of 20.92%. Alright, so they performed much better than the S&P 500. More than twice as good. But that's neither here nor there. The topic of focus today is valuation, and whether the application of dividend yield theory or the PE multiple led to positive alpha. To test this, I chose the 10 cheapest stocks based on each valuation method, and I assumed a holding period of 1 year. The next year, I repeated the same process, and the same the year thereafter, for all 6 years. Let's start with dividend yield theory first. The portfolio of the 10 cheapest stocks based on dividend yield theory returned 293.43%, or a compounded annual growth rate of 25.64%. So dividend yield theory passed the test, and led to positive alpha. It generated an 80.79% higher total return that equated to a 4.72% higher CAGR. In dollar terms, that's the equivalent of earning about $8,000 more for every $10,000 invested. What's interesting as well is that the dividend yield theory portfolio led to a higher return during each of the 6 years. For some years, the outperformance was marginal, but there were a few years with pretty significant alpha. Alright, let's see how using the PE multiple would have worked out. Again, I chose the 10 cheapest stocks based on the PE multiple and held these stocks for a 1 year period, repeating this process each year for all 6 years. The portfolio of the 10 cheapest stocks based on the PE multiple returned 325.87%, or a compounded annual growth rate of 27.31%. So the PE multiple valuation also passed the test and led to positive alpha. It generated 113% higher total return that equated to a 6.39% higher CAGR. Not only did it outperform all 25 tested dividend stocks, it also beat the dividend yield theory portfolio. In dollar terms, it was the equivalent of earning about $11,000 more for every $10,000 invested. What was interesting with the PE multiple portfolio is that it did not outperform all 25 stocks during each year. It only led to outperformance during 4 out of the 6 years. Granted, the two years of underperformance were very marginal, 30 basis points in 2018 and 2 basis points in 2020. The years of outperformance on the other hand were all pretty significant, 9.46% in 2019, 6.19% in 2021, 11.53% in 2022, and 10.82% in 2023. So can we conclude that the PE multiple is superior to dividend yield theory? In this example, yes. But there are many ways each valuation method can be applied and tested. The PE multiple portfolio and the dividend yield theory portfolio in my test had about 56% overlap in the stocks they held each year. It's fair to say that they were pretty unique, with each portfolio holding 4 or 5 unique stocks each year. 
Out of curiosity, I decided to combine both valuation methods and see how well the 10 cheapest stocks using the average of the PE multiple and dividend yield theory would have performed. This portfolio generated a total return of 332.43%, or a CAGR of 27.64%, outperforming both the PE multiple portfolio and the dividend yield theory portfolio. While the margin of outperformance over the PE multiple portfolio was minimal, a 6.56% higher total return, or a 0.32% improvement in the CAGR, the combined valuation portfolio had the best track record of generating alpha over all 25 stocks in each individual year. Its smallest margin of outperformance was 1.89% in 2020. Whereas we know the PE multiple portfolio underperformed all 25 stocks during 2 out of the 6 years. And while the dividend yield theory portfolio outperformed all 25 stocks during all 6 years, its smallest margin of outperformance was 0.33% in 2023. We all know that valuations matter, and with very high volatility in the market during the past few years, perhaps it would have been more prudent to reassess the most undervalued stocks more frequently than once per year. And that is exactly what I did in my next test. I computed the valuation for each stock on a quarterly basis, giving me 24 data points for the original 6-year test window. Before I share the results with you, I'm curious if you think that rebalancing to the cheapest stocks each quarter rather than each year led to even more alpha. Let's find out. I'll again start with dividend yield theory first. I took all 25 stocks and I sorted them in ascending order from most undervalued to most overvalued at the start of each quarter. Here are the returns based on groups of 5 stocks. The 5 most undervalued stocks using this quarterly rebalancing generated a total return of 433.61%, or a CAGR of 32.19%. The next 5 cheapest stocks, so stocks that ranked 6 through 10, generated a total return of 224.08%, or a CAGR of 21.65%. The middle 5 stocks, stocks ranked 11 through 15, generated a total return of 156.22%, or a CAGR of 16.98%. The next 5 stocks, stocks ranked 16 through 20, generated a total return of 167.75%, or a CAGR of 17.84%. And the 5 most expensive stocks generated a return of 158.9%, or a CAGR of 17.18%. So clearly, the application of dividend yield theory proved to be beneficial, as the most undervalued stocks, on average, generated higher returns. And stocks that appeared to be more overvalued generally led to worse returns compared to all 25 stocks. To make this more of an apples-to-apples comparison to the previous annual test, Owning the 10 cheapest stocks using a quarterly rebalancing frequency led to a total return of 322.02%, or a CAGR of 27.12%. This proved to be a better return compared to the annually rebalanced portfolio that had a total return of 293.43%, or a CAGR of 25.64%. However, this example does not factor in any drag from capital gains taxes that would likely be much higher for the quarterly rebalanced portfolio. Let's now see how the quarterly balance portfolio based on the PE multiple would have performed. Again, I applied the same principle here. I took all 25 stocks and sorted them in ascending order based on their PE multiple valuation for each quarter. Here are the returns for the stocks grouped into buckets of 5. The 5 cheapest stocks had a total return of 378.4%, or a CAGR of 29.81%. The next 5 cheapest stocks had a total return of 323.97%, or a CAGR of 27.22%. 
The next five cheapest stocks had a total return of 223.49%, or a CAGR of 21.61%. The next five cheapest stocks had a total return of 216.07%, or a CAGR of 21.14%. And the five most expensive stocks had a total return of just 48.11%, or a CAGR of 6.77%. So again, we can see that the PE multiple led to better results, but the outcome is a bit different compared to dividend yield theory. The return generated from the 5 cheapest stocks is not quite as generous. However, the second 5 cheapest stocks here perform considerably better than the second 5 cheapest stocks based on dividend yield theory. And of course, we can also see that the most expensive 5 stocks, based on the PE multiple, performed very poorly, whereas the 5 most expensive stocks using dividend yield theory performed considerably better. For the same apples to apples comparison, the 10 cheapest stocks based on a quarterly rebalancing had a total return of 355.54%, or a CAGR of 28.75%. This again was better than the annually rebalanced portfolio that had a total return of 325.87%, or a CAGR of 27.31%. But this about 30% better total return would likely be eaten away by capital gains taxes if this test was applied in a taxable brokerage account. Finally, let me share with you the results for the combined valuation test based on the quarterly rebalancing frequency. I'm going to jump straight into the results. The five cheapest stocks had a total return of 447.75%, or a CAGR of 32.77%. The next five cheapest stocks had a total return of 312.88%, or a CAGR of 26.66%. The next five cheapest stocks had a total return of 174.82%, or a CAGR of 18.35%. The next five cheapest stocks had a total return of 111.13%, or a CAGR of 13.26%. And the five most expensive stocks had a total return of 137%, or a CAGR of 15.47%. So using the combination of the PE multiple and dividend yield theory with quarterly rebalancing led to the best results. The five cheapest stocks performed the best, outpacing both the application of dividend yield theory or the PE multiple on their own. However, beyond the five cheapest stocks, the returns start to diminish, much like we saw with each valuation method tested individually. For an apples-to-apples -apples comparison to the annual rebalance test, the 10 cheapest stocks based on both valuation methods and rebalance quarterly led to a total return of 380.86%, or a CAGR of 29.92%. This was better than the results of the annual tests that had a total return of 332.43%, or a CAGR of 27.64%. Okay, so what conclusions can we draw from this data, and how can we apply it to benefit us going forward? The first conclusion is that valuation clearly does matter when it comes to investing. Stock prices move up and down constantly, and because of this volatility, we as investors get the opportunity to improve or hurt our long-term returns based on the decisions we make today. Valuing a single stock can be tricky, and I found that it's easier to benefit from valuations when you group stocks into small baskets. Let me show you inside this data set to better explain exactly what I mean by this. I'll run through each valuation method starting with dividend yield theory first. What you're seeing here is the total return and the CAGR for all 25 slots from the most undervalued to the most overvalued stock at the start of each quarter. So the first row in this data set is the return generated by investing only in the most undervalued stock each quarter. For transparency, 8 out of the 25 tested stocks rotated as the most undervalued stock in the 24 quarterly data points. But the return generated by investing only in the most undervalued stock was not very good. 
The total return was only 143.26%, or a CAGR of 15.97%. And while this was superior to investing in the S&P, it was not better than owning all 25 stocks for the full 6 years. Actually, it was about 80% worse. Investing in the second most undervalued stock turned out to be much better, as it generated a total return of 437.34%. And investing in the third most undervalued stock turned out to be the best, as it generated a total return of 864.01%. This randomness in returns continues as we look at all 25 valuation slots. With no clear correlation, other than that more of the better returns are located closer to the top of the data set, rather than the bottom. If we look at the same data set for the PE multiple valuation, we see a similar trend. Investing in the single cheapest stock each quarter led to a poor return of 84.46%, which is actually worse than investing in the S&P 500. The best return was actually generated by investing in the fourth cheapest stock. Something else we can see in this data set is that most of the poor returns are found towards the bottom with the more expensive stocks. There were 7 slots that returned less than 100%, and 6 of them are found amongst the 11 most expensive stocks. Looking at the dataset for the combined valuation test, we can see similar randomness. The one exception here is that the cheapest stock actually generated a decent return of 334.2% that was better than owning all 25 stocks. The conclusion we can draw from this is that just because a stock looks cheap doesn't necessarily mean it will give you a higher return than a more expensive stock. And this feeds into the point that there are other forces beyond valuation that drive stock returns. First and foremost, you have to find the right stocks to invest in, and then you can play around with valuations. Because if you invest in crappy stocks, it won't matter if they're cheap or expensive, you're going to end up with crappy returns. The 25 stocks I used in this test were not chosen randomly. They were the result of a detailed quality screener that helped me narrow down the entire universe of dividend-paying stocks down to what I believe were the top 25. No screening process is perfect, but I feel like this one worked out pretty well. The returns speak for themselves. These 25 stocks were able to generate twice the return of the S&P 500 between 2018 and 2023. That's a very impressive feat. If you'd like to know who these 25 stocks are, you should sign up for my free newsletter. I've already covered 5 of them in past editions, and I'll be disclosing the full quality portfolio in the near future. I will also share their valuations frequently and track the returns going forward. Just because these stocks performed well in the past 6 years, doesn't necessarily mean they will continue to deliver strong returns. But I'd rather invest in companies that have a strong track record of beating the market, than in some randomly chosen stocks. There's a link to the newsletter in the description of this video. If you'd like to value stocks using dividend yield theory or the PE multiple, I do share some useful spreadsheets on my Patreon that can help you simplify the process. These tools are also available for free in the newsletter referral program if you're willing to put in a little work and help me grow my reader base. Before I wrap up here, let's talk about how you can use the insights from this test to improve your returns. First off, as I just mentioned a second ago, you should learn how to identify high-quality stocks. Once you have a small universe of stocks that you have reviewed and you're fairly confident these are great companies that have the potential to grow in the future, then you can run one or both of the valuation methods I tested here to see which of your chosen stocks look the cheapest right now. Based on the data I found, it may not be prudent to simply chase after the cheapest stock or two. Instead, you can invest in the 5 or 10 cheapest stocks. It's highly likely that a handful of these choices will not pan out as expected, but if you're able to time a handful of your choices accurately, and these stocks go on to generate handsome returns, they will more than offset the losers that get mixed in the bunch. 
The third thing you should keep in mind is that you have to give your strategy time to work. Even great investors have extended periods of time where they underperform the market. Looking back at my data set for the quarterly rebounds portfolios, the five cheapest stocks under both valuation methods and the combined valuation test all crushed the return of the entire universe of 25 stocks over the six-year test window. However, under each valuation method, the five cheapest stocks had as many as three consecutive quarterly periods where they underperformed the entire universe. In the dividend yield theory test, the five cheapest stocks beat the universe in 17 out of the 25 quarters. In the PE multiple test, it was only 13 out of the 25 quarters. And the combined valuation test won 15 out of 25 quarters. It's pretty easy to get discouraged if you're losing to the market, and it's very difficult to stay the course when the grass looks greener on the other side, because there are no guarantees in the stock market. I hope you enjoyed the content. If you did, then please give this podcast a 5-star rating. Thank you for joining me today, and see you next time.